Welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews, a proud member of the Inside Voices Network, and now on Patreon. In this episode, Christy asks questions and tries to uncover the Insider. I build a space armada for galactic conquest in Star Realms Frontiers. Mike packs snacks and takes a hike on a spring meadow. And Mason seeks his fortune in Kaching. But first, Meeple Lady plunders Roland Wright treasure in silver and gold. Ever since we've been on lockdown here in Arizona, I can't help but imagine taking a trip. Some are secluded, some are tropical, a perfect island vacation with a refreshing beverage in hand. Since that's not happening any time in the near future, I'll settle for a tropical game escape. One that includes islands, palm trees, golden coins, and some dry erase markers. I'm talking about Silver and Gold, a roll and write released in 2019 by Pandasaurus Games and designed by Philip Walker Harding with artwork by Oliver Freudenreich. Silver and Gold was first covered by Ruth in episode 64. The game actually falls closer to the flip and fill category, as players are working toward filling their treasure cards with polyomino shapes shown on expedition cards for victory points at the end of the game. The game lasts for 10 to 20 minutes, the box is small and easily transportable, and the game doesn't really have a big footprint. It's a great short game to start or end a game day with, or when you're finally out and about in the wild like at a bar or restaurant with two to four friends. And the coolest part? You can actually write on these cards with your dry erase marker. I can't immediately recall off the top of my head another game that has that same mechanism. Most other roll and writes come with their own pad of scoring sheets that you can tear off as you play the game, but in this game, you don't have to do that. How neat is that? I kind of wish more games had this feature to reduce waste, or in my case, reduce that impending dread of running out of sheets for the game. Yes, I know, I'm sure I can find a file of said game on BGG somewhere, but for someone who doesn't have a color printer, that can be quite a hassle. Gameplay in Silver and Gold lasts for four rounds. Each round has three steps. The first step is revealing an expedition card. In each round, seven of the eight expedition cards will be revealed. On the expedition cards are six different types of polyomino shapes, shapes similar to ones you'd see in Tetris. The second step of the round is crossing off the shape on the newly revealed expedition card on one of your treasure cards sitting face up in front of you. You can do this on the actual card with the dry erase marker. The markings can be easily erased later with a tissue and reused for a later game. Again, this is super cool. Each player starts with two treasure cards and a score sheet in front of them. You can also write on the score sheet, and it can also be erased when you're done with the game. In the middle of the table will be four face-up treasure cards, and on each of your treasure cards there are island shapes made up of gridded squares. On some squares are symbols such as palm trees, gold coins, and red X's. The third step of the round is collecting bonuses when you cross off one of these symbols. When you cross off a palm tree, you immediately score points for it. The number of points is based on a number of crossed off palm trees on that card, as well as the total number of palm trees showing on the four displayed cards in the middle of the table. That number is then written down on the player's scoring sheet next to the palm tree symbol. You can only score palm trees four times during the game. If you cross off a gold coin, you can mark one of the coins on your scoring sheet. If you complete a row, you score the highest available trophy left on the round card. These trophies range from 6 to 1, and a player can only score up to 3 trophies. If a player has completed a treasure card, they place it next to them and they collect one of the 4 face-up treasure cards in the middle of the table. After 4 rounds, players score the points on completed treasure cards, 
They also score points for each crossed off coin, for trophies, for palm trees, and seal bonus on any treasure cards, which give you bonus points for collecting a certain treasure card in a particular color. Any treasure cards not completely filled in won't score any points, and the person with the most points wins the game. As with any game that's like Tetris, you have to make tough decisions about where you want to place your piece, how you want to orient it, and whether you want to bet if a specific shape will come out later in the game. Remember, only seven of the eight cards will be revealed each round. If you can't place it at all, you can instead mark off one single box on a treasure card. But that's not an efficient way to spend your turn. The game is also a race to possibly collect higher value trophies first, and to grab treasure cards that are of higher value, but also more difficult to fill in. It's such a fun puzzle for new and old gamers alike. And when you're done with the game, you just rub off all those marks to clear your cards for a future game. It's so very satisfying. And that's silver and gold. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. With game design booming in recent years, there are so many mechanisms for designers to choose from. Some of my favorite reuses or borrowings of mechanisms happen when designers take simple core mechanisms from two or three games and combine them to create something new. Ideally, the new game would take on the best features of the games that inspired it to create a new experience. That's what happens in Insider. Insider is a version of the spoken game 20 Questions with a twist of social deduction. In 20 questions, one person, we'll call them the master, comes up with a person, place, or thing for the rest of the players to guess. The players take turns asking the master yes or no questions such as, is it alive? And is it smaller than a shoebox? The players win by using their questions to eventually make a correct guess in 20 questions or fewer. If they run out of questions, the master wins. Typically, you would play multiple rounds in a session for as long as you want. The player to guess correctly might become the next master, or players can simply take turns. Some people might think of 20 questions as more of an activity than a game, since the procedure of asking questions is so consistent and the master is not allowed to lie. Insider helps gamify 20 questions so that every player has more to think about, including the master. Instead of a question limit, there is a time limit in the form of a 5-minute sand timer. At the beginning of each round, players are assigned a secret role. The master can be determined randomly in this way, or players can take turns. One person who is not the master becomes the insider. Everyone else is considered a commoner, or as werewolf would call it, a villager. The insider is allowed to look at the word or phrase before the players start asking questions. The commoners and the insider then work cooperatively to arrive at the correct question, with the insider supporting the group while trying to remain anonymous. If the group cannot arrive at the right person, place, or thing before the timer runs out, everyone loses. So the insider is definitely motivated to help. If the group gets it right, then everyone, including the master, discusses and votes on who they think the insider is. If the group is correct, then everyone wins except for the insider. If the group is incorrect, the insider wins and everyone else loses. The similarity of insider to 20 questions makes it great for families, kids, and casual gamers. It's easy to join in and drop out across several rounds if there are other things going on. Unlike some other games that depend more heavily on social deduction, 
Insider does not require any lying until perhaps right at the end when you might need to deflect suspicion. Even then, you always have the option of pointing out good questions that other players asked, and therefore, the game relies somewhat less on one's acting ability. It might take an example round for some folks to understand why the insider does not want to be too obvious. And as with any real-time game, some people may not enjoy feeling rushed by the timer. Insider has one potential flaw that isn't necessarily evident from reading the rules, but happens sometimes during gameplay. If the group is too good at asking questions, they may sometimes arrive at the answer without much assistance from the insider. In this type of situation, there's no reason for the insider to risk much of anything by steering things in the right direction. So there aren't always enough clues for the group to accuse the right person. Theoretically, a shorter time limit would be helpful in these situations to put more pressure on the insider, but it's not really possible for groups to anticipate when they should shorten the time limit based on what the person, place, or thing is supposed to be. So that solution only works if the problem is happening consistently. Meanwhile, commoners should keep in mind that any impressive leaps of logic, however innocent they may be, will likely cause suspicion. Some players will find it more fun to ask the best questions they can think of, no matter the circumstances, and others may gamify it a bit more. I think Insider is a game that different groups can play at whatever level of seriousness is most fun for them. The player count can range from 4 to 8, but 5 or 6 is the sweet spot. You want enough people that it feels like a group effort, but few enough that everyone gets to ask several questions. Insider is published by Oink Games and designed by Kwaji, Daichi Okano, Kito Shinma, and Akihiro Ito. The art is by Jun Sasaki. Insider packs a lot of fun into an impressively tiny box. It consists of some cards, the cardboard roll tokens, and a sand timer. I will be the first to admit that my fascination with small portable games has outpaced my need for them, especially in current circumstances but it's great to have a small party game you can throw in a bag or purse, especially if you have some circles that rely on you to show up with stuff. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening. A frontier at the edge of the galaxy has been opened up by a warp gate. Four different factions look to conquer this new unexplored space territory. Can you ally these factions and establish your new star realm? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Star Realms Frontiers, a game by Rob Doherty and Darwin Castle, with art by Antonis Papantuno. Star Realms Frontiers was published in 2018 by White Wizard Games, who sent me a review copy. Mason previously reviewed the Star Realms base game in Episode 7. Star Realms Frontiers is a standalone sequel that can be played by 1-4 players, with games typically running 20-30 to 30 minutes long. The game includes four starter decks and a much better two-card point tracking system that replaces the old clumsy cards. For this review, I'm focusing on the one- and two-player experiences only, since I consider these the best ways to play the game. Like the original game, Star Realms Frontiers, you'll drop and play cards from your hand to earn trade, aka currency, and combat, aka damage. Trade allows you to buy more powerful cards from the ever-changing trade row to add to your personal deck. Combat causes damage to your opponent. You'll both start with 50 authority, aka hit points or health. As the game progresses, you'll be able to create combinations between one or more of the four factions in the game, resulting in drawing more cards and generating more trade and or combat. The first player to whittle their opponent down to zero authority wins the game. Star Realms Frontiers takes everything I love about the base game and makes it better. 
It keeps the straightforward and fast gameplay of the original by sticking to the tried and true deck building formula. Draw 5 cards and play them for currency combating actions, then buy new cards for your deck. And like the base game, the one-on-one -on -one aspect of combat makes this far more interactive and fun than plain old vanilla Dominion. It's why base Star Realms quickly became a favorite of mine whenever I had a deck building itch that needed to be scratched. However, Frontiers replaces all of the ships in the main deck and introduces a neat little addition in the form of multiple faction abilities. So, in the original and the sequel, whenever you play two cards of the same faction, you typically get a second action. This ramps up the action, allowing you to generate lots of money or hits on your opponent. This fast pace continues in Frontiers, with a few new cards giving you an additional action for a third matching faction card. While you may bemoan your fate when your opponent draws three blob faction cards that allow them to put a big hit on you, you're often able to retaliate quickly with your own powerful combo if you've managed to draw well. Yes, luck of the draw plays a big part, but you still have enough chances to put together a deck that combos well. The game can be over quickly, and immediate rematches are often a regular feature of a two-player game. The quick nature of Frontiers seems to have inspired another deck builder, Shards of Infinity, which I reviewed in episode 69. Key to any game of Star Realms is your ability to get the factions to work together. Each faction specializes in a different aspect of the game. The blobs dole out damage, the Trade Federation generates currency and health, while the Star Empire draws cards and the Machine Cult trashes cards. You usually won't win by focusing in on only one faction. You're better off trying to get a few factions that will allow you to quickly buy more powerful cards and trash your scout ships, the Dominion Copper of this game. Like the original, you're trying to get your allies working together. You can go heavy on the blobs for increased damage or purchase a lot of Trade Federation, hoping to generate big money turns to buy the most expensive ships in the galaxy. I've always liked the sci-fi art of Star Realms, and I enjoy it even more in Frontiers. My favorite are the blobs, which look like something straight out of H.R. Giger's mind with its alien-inspired biomechanical spaceships. However, the best part of Star Realms Frontiers by far are the 8 solo and cooperative challenges that are included. For those players who want to work together to defeat a boss monster, Frontiers offers up an opportunity to do just that. The challenges give a sense of a narrative arc as you try to build your space armada to take down the big baddie trying to destroy the galaxy. While not a full-on campaign mode, there's just enough in Frontiers that will make you feel like you're not simply shuffling and drawing cards. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed playing these challenges. It was a lot of fun teaming up with my wife to take down the Demesis Beast or playing a solo game against the Dimensional Horror and its tentacled attack. Each challenge features a boss monster card that you deal damage to, and based on what cards it draws, it will gain an ability to hinder and damage you and your teammates. During these days of increased social and physical distancing, Star Realms Frontiers is an excellent choice for those of us who are soloing games or looking for two-player options. Even new players can easily learn this game and be quickly on their way to establishing their own galactic empire. Thanks to White Wizard Games for the review copy of Star Realms Frontiers. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. We're a tiling family. Carcassonne was one of our first modern board games and we fell hard for it. To this day, the kids and I all still play the occasional game of Kark and generally like the vast majority of tile-laying games. So I guess what I'm saying is, if you're looking for an unbiased review of Spring Meadow, you should probably look elsewhere. So back in 2014, when Uwe Rosenberg kicked things up a notch with Polyominoes, well, I sat up and paid attention. And then subsequently went back to sleep as Anna wasn't in any way interested in making a quilt. 
But then came Cottage Garden in 2016, and I sat up again, except, honestly, it was a little much for a family game in our opinion, with filling two separate boards at once and two score tracks, and, well, the same for 2017's Indian Summer, which I did personally love, but after teaching it a few times, I realized that for me, the game was not worth the teach, so I never covered it. Sorry. I don't know about you, but my gaming taste seemed to have split lately. I'm loving the simple games with easy and quick rule sets, but depth of play, and the medium-heavy games that provide long-involved gameplay. That middle ground of medium games, however, has just been hollowed out for me. Personal preference, of course. But if you are interested in Patchwork, Mason covered it back in episode 53, and Sarah covered Cottage Garden in episode 40, which is good, as they both seem to have liked those games better than I did. Anyway, the point is that by the time the third game of Mr. Rosenberg's Puzzle Trilogy hit, I went ahead and ordered an international copy from Pegasus Spiele rather than waiting. And I'm okay with that because it was just right in some weird Goldilocks world where the two prior were either both too hot or both too cold? Anyway, in Spring Meadow we are going on a hike. Which obviously means we are selecting tiles to reclaim the greenery on a snow-covered meadow because that's what one does on a hike, isn't it? First we set up the tile selection board, and can I say thank goodness for a tile selection board instead of a sliding row of tiles, because thank goodness. As the signpost marker moves around the board, the player whose turn it is selects a tile piece to place on their board. There are very few rules in Spring Meadow as to how you can place your tile, so long as they don't overlap, don't extend past the edge of the board, and generally don't cover up the open marmot burrows. That's it. They can be adjacent, not adjacent, whatever. No one cares. Except during scoring you'll care, because you score for full rows from the bottom up. So you should probably do that if winning is something you care about, which it may not be. No judgment here. So what's up with the Marmot Burrows? Well, I'm glad you asked, because they threw me for a loop at first. Though I was playing my first game a week after getting a concussion, so maybe that was it. Anyway, Burrows are an automatic filled space. Cool, right? Free points. Except, what if you want more free points? Well in that case, you see those holes in the polyominoes? Yeah, those ones. If you place your polyomino so that the hole is over the burrow, well then you've cleared the burrow, and now instead of just getting 10 points for clearing that row of snow, you get extra points for clearing that burrow. Further, if you link multiple holes in the tiles, then you get a bonus tile to help fill those small, niggly little spaces you often get trying to fill a board with polyominoes. What? Those other holes aren't over marmot burrows? That's fine. For some reason, we don't care. But we do care if you try and cover a burrow with a non-hole part of your tile. As a matter of fact, that really teased the marmots off, and they popped their heads out of another previously clear burrow, and poof, there goes that point. Bummer. So, you should really think twice before messing with their habitat, which honestly is a good life lesson in general. Okay, so the signpost is circling the board, players are selecting their pieces and playing them to their meadow boards, and everything is going great. Except what happens when the signpost gets to a row that only has one or zero options left? Well, you've hit a scoring round. The person who hit the scoring round takes a picnic token for plus two, as they are at a potential disadvantage. Then each player counts the number of rows completely filled from the bottom up and gets 10 points for each row. Then one point for each covered square in the next row. All other covered squares in higher rows are ignored. And finally, they get one additional point for every clear burrow. The player with the most points collects that picnic token and flips it to the hiking pin side to symbolize that they won that round. Then they must cover every clear burrow with a marmot tile. This decreases their score a little for future scoring rounds and makes placement a little more difficult, as if you have no clear burrows, then you can't cover up a burrow with a tile placement until you've cleared more. Finally, you refill the selection board and play picks back up with the player who triggered the scoring round. And that's it! That's mechanically how you play Spring Meadow. How you actually play is by looking ahead on the piece board and trying to figure out what pieces work best now, what options you're likely to have for your next couple of turns, and what options are most likely to mess up your opponents. 
Yet Spring Meadow is a very peaceful game for us. There are trade-offs to messing over someone else, and with how selection works, it's very rare that you can even do that. So, not completely multiplayer solitaire, but pretty darn close. Add in the tile placement, simple rules, and the beautiful Andrea Bokoff artwork, and who wouldn't want to create a lush meadow in bloom full of marmots? My only complaint is that yes, we have had a few plays where someone has managed to get such a quick and early lead that they quickly win both the first two scoring rounds and win the game. There is skill involved in placing polyominoes and getting those bonus tiles, but as with most tile selection games, your choices are limited, and luck plays a big factor. But in that instance, we just agreed to start again. Anecdotally, I can say this did not happen in a 4-player game, but I don't see why it couldn't. It just may be less likely at 3 and 4 players. Anyway, that's Spring Meadow, the Goldilocks of polyomino tile placement games, at least for us. If you have any further questions or comments about Spring Meadow, you're welcome to reach out to me on Instagram at mrisley underscore ut. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Kaching. A two-player stock trading small box game right title from the early 2000s should not exist. It has wacky art that I love, and the back of the box is that your kids will learn multiplication. You probably don't want to play Kaching with a child. Kaching is dirty. Kaching is mean. Kaching is emergent. Kaching is very, very hard. I am at a loss for why this isn't a top 10 two-player game, and frankly, I'm at a loss for why this is out of print. Normally, as you know, I don't cover out-of-print games. I dislike telling you to buy something that's a hassle to source, but there are a number of very reasonable copies on eBay, and if you'll hang tight for a few minutes, I'll tell you how to make your own with stuff you already have around the house. Kaching is a stock buying and trading card game. The distro is pretty simple. you got five color suits, seven cards each. Two twos, two threes, a four, a five, and a six. So you shuffle these cards up and you lay them out in five rows of seven. You get a handful of money, and there are really only two rules. You either buy the bottom card from a row, or sell a suited pair of cards you already bought. Now the hook here is that selling the cards profits the multiple of the two cards. So let's say that you bought a red three and a red six earlier in the game, and now on your turn you're going to sell them for 18. Well, congratulations, you just doubled your money. To win, you just do that again and again until the game is over. Well, the problem, of course, is that there's another person sitting across from you who wants to do the exact same thing. So, there's emergence. The game here isn't maximizing your trades. The game is a tactical struggle between two people to get the highest value stocks, and maybe more importantly, prevent their opponent from getting the stocks that they want. Now, it's okay that Kaching is mean because it's quick. Like, really quick. Like, you probably want to play a best of three quick. If two players are equally matched, it can be pretty swinging. So if you're into balance, well, you're a coward, but that's a different discussion. If you're into balance, you probably don't care about score as much as you care about wins and losses. Although, if you wanted to be fair, actually, though fairness is a largely broken and dull concept that we should discuss a different time, you'd probably play four rounds where you kept running score. And does it matter? Not really. The race here, though, is part of the emergence. The game ends when there are only two columns of stocks left on the table then you both get one final chance to sell. Ideally, you only have one set of good stocks left, but that doesn't always happen. Anything you've bought that remains unsold is trash. So don't overbuy, don't overdiversify your portfolio. You do have a wild card that you can make a matched pair with to sell during the game if you get short of cash, but you should probably hold it until late in case it looks like you'll need to use it in the final turn. The money is on cards in Gaching, and your stocks are face up on the table. This turns out to be more important than I had originally expected when reading the rules. You definitely don't want to play your homemade version of Kaching with poker chips unless you're using screens. Let's say you've already got a red 5 in front of you, and I know you can't afford the red 6 underneath the blue 3 I want, so there's no danger for me, I'll buy the blue 3. It's the not knowing that's a big part of the emergence here. 
second guessing and hedging and mitigating risk are the things that keep me coming back to Kaching. The strategy isn't immediately obvious, and full disclosure, as always, I am very bad at this game. In the dozen or so rounds we've played, Megan has just destroyed me every time. The emergence here is really no surprise, since Kaching was co-designed by Klaus Pausch. See my segment on the wonderfully cruel Stiekel all the way back in episode 12. The original version of this game was called Combit, put out by Winning Moves Germany, who are one of my favorite publishers uh, back in 2001. That version is certainly more somber and serious, does not have the wacky art of the 2006 game right version, but good luck in tracking it down if that's your sort of thing. I couldn't find it anywhere. So you want to make your own copy. Yes, good, excellent. Perfectly fine also since it's out of print. What do you need? Well, it depends on how good you want it to be. If you've got five colors of cardstock or construction paper and some card sleeves, you're all set. If you want to get fancy, you could do a good job and design nice looking cards for yourself on the computer, or you could just buy blank playing cards, they're in the educational supply section, and write on them with colored markers. If these aren't a staple around your house, I would highly recommend buying a big box of them. They come in very, very handy. If you want to make yourself some money cards, Kaching comes with ones, twos, fives, and tens, and it's very important that the backs are all the same if you're playing against an adult. Of course, if you've got poker chips and screens, that would work just fine too. Again, each of the five suits needs two twos, two threes, a four, a five, and a six. It doesn't really matter what color they are, it doesn't matter if you use some kind of weird symbol or weird art, as long as there are five distinct suits. We've played a lot of Kaching on our porch this year, but as a card game, it's a no-go when it's windy, and here in central Oklahoma, it is often very windy. I racked my brains trying to come up with a homemade version that would stay in place, and paint marker on the backs of a cheap set of dominoes was the best thing I could think of, but I haven't done it yet. Poker chips won't blow away, but if someone has a good idea for a screen, let me know. A good laminated set of stock cards and money cards would go perfectly in your card quiver or your coat pocket, and I think Kaching would be a great two people hanging out at the bar game whenever it's safe to go out in public again sometime next year. So, who should play Kaching? People who like light and tight two player card games. People who want to play a stock trading game but don't want it to take all damn day. People who like Jaipur or Lost Cities. And people who want to teach their kids about multiplication and the brutality of capitalist financial malfeasance. I give Kaching 5 out of 5 cartoon presidential portraits with giant chins. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Wash your hands and wear a mask. This has been the 5 Buy, your five stop shop for rapid fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 Buy Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 5 by games. Thanks for listening and happy gaming. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.